The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine. Discuss a packed round of international diplomacy as Volodymyr Zelensky confronts Viktor Orban in Argentina. And we hear why rising egg prices heralds domestic problems in Russia. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 11th of December, one year and 290 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, US editor, Tony Diver, and editor at the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilmer. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So uh, Russian missile strikes this morning on Kyiv have injured a number of people. No reported deaths, but uh, a number of injuries. Sergei Popko, the city's military chief, said the missiles hit the Donetsky and Holosivsky districts about 4 a.m. this morning. The Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down eight missiles and 18 drones. That chimes with what we heard last week from the I was in a brief, you remember, with a Western official, and that's backed up today by today's MOD briefing, saying that, that the long-anticipated Russian bombing campaign against Ukraine's national infrastructure, the power grid, has, has likely begun. So we're expecting, expecting more of this through the winter, although it would be very interesting to see how much the Ukrainian air defence has improved in, in quantity and quality from last year. So far, they are shooting down the vast majority of, of attacks. Elsewhere, though, there have been advances mainly by Russia over the weekend. So ISW have been looking particularly around the east of the country. They say Russia has advanced to the north, the west and the southwest of Bakhmut and to the west of Donetsk City and near Avdivka. Ukraine's army general, the Ukrainian army's general staff said that just on Sunday alone, there were 60 major contacts across the course of the day. Colonel General Alexander Sersky, who's the head of the ground forces in the Ukrainian army, he said the enemy continues to conduct offensive actions along the entire front line. That is accurate. That's what we've been being seeing. However, the contacts are mostly concentrated around Evdivka in the east. So MOD, British MOD, saying that, that Abdivka is seeing the most intense fighting anywhere with up to uh, as much as 40% of all combat right now over the last uh, last few weeks taking place in Abdivka. So British MOD says, as reflected in official Ukrainian public release data, on some days approaching 40% of all combat engagements have taken place in this small sector. However, they do go on, the Russian offensive have continued to be characterised by largely dismounted infantry assaults often by Storm Z penal units. Storm Z penal units, you may remember, are, they're sometimes referred to as the meat assaults. They are, so Russia's not committing as many armoured vehicles at the moment, either because they're not there, they've already been destroyed, or because they are trying to preserve what they've got, what they've got left, and they are relying on human waves, basically, men just running at, at Ukrainian guns, which are very, very 
well well sighted and prepared. They've been prepared there for years. And hence, we see those casualties up to a thousand a day was the figure we we heard last week from the Western official I spoke to. A thousand casualties that's killed, wounded, it also includes missing and taken prisoner. Although I think there's very few of those last two categories. I think basically when we talk about casualty figures, it's killed and wounded. And so it is it is extremely violent around Avdivka. The penal units in Russia are those. Units that are formed of people who have fallen foul of, of the Russian military legal system, and they are then put into these groups that are effectively just told to go forward, given very little support. There are reports that they are forced at gunpoint to do that, and if they try and go back, they are shot. I've not seen that many confirmed episodes of that occurring, so I don't think they're turning around and running running back to be shot. But I think they are just going forward with very little equipment and ammunition and what have you. So. I mean, it's, it's just the moral bankruptcy of this force laid out for us to see yet again. And just finally, David, I'm a bit out of breath because I've just come out of a um, come out of, a, of a, a meeting there with British Defence Secretary Grant Shapps, Norway's Minister of Defence Bjorn Graham, and um, Admiral Nispava, who's the head of the Ukrainian Navy. This is on the back of the story I've got in today's paper about Britain's going to be gifting a couple of minehunter ships to um, to. Ukraine, more on that in a moment, but this is the start of what they're calling a, a maritime capability coalition. So at the moment, so Grant Chap says that there are three countries here at the moment, Britain, Norway and Ukraine, in this new group that's going to build up Ukraine's naval capability. And then Grant, Grant Chap's our Defence Secretary, said, he said, actually, there's three on the flag at the moment, but uh, by this time tomorrow, there should be 20. And I thought, well, well, let's have the meeting tomorrow then. I mean, why why'd you call it for today? And, and you can't tell me who else is going to be in this this great coalition of naval stuff. Anyway, it's going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, used as a, a blueprint to develop the to U- Ukraine's navy. Britain has gifted two mine hunters. They don't, yeah, they don't talk mine sweepers anymore. It's just not how it's not how it's done. Mine hunters generally using autonomous vehicles, drones, sometimes using ships divers as well. Although that's that's now moving out of fashion as a, as a capability. You, you send the drone down looking for <clears throat> mines and what have you. Britain's also sending 23 raiding craft and 20 Viking amphibious vehicles. Those last, the Vikings, are tracked vehicles, but they can swim as well. Those ones, the raiding craft and the Vikings, they are primarily used by our commando units, which is in Britain. That's the vast majority of commando commando forces are Royal Marines, Royal Marine commandos, but there are some army commandos as well. I think there's also some Air Force people who have qualified as commandos, but it's predominantly the Royal Marines. And the Royal Marines and uh, Norwegian Marines have been training Ukraine's Marines for a number of number of months now, and they think they've trained well over 900 Ukrainian Marines, which we might be seeing. Maybe that's what's happening on the left bank of the Dnipro. We don't know. Anyway, more to uh, more to come on this maritime coalition probably tomorrow when when they reveal who these other the other 20 countries are. It's all in the context, of course, as we'll speak about in a moment about what's happening in the U.S. and funding for Ukraine, and of course also the uh, the requirement and the heat being put on on Europe. I thought, which I will save for a few minutes. But that's uh, that's it for me for now, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom. So in diplomacy and politics, let's start, and there's quite a few things to get through today, but let's start with this fascinating confrontation between Volodymyr Zelensky and Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary. So on Sunday, we were treated to a recording of Zelensky confronting Orban at the inauguration of the new Argentinian president, Javier Millet. 
Video footage showed Zelensky and Orban in animated conversation on the sidelines of the event in Buenos Aires. What they said, we're still not entirely sure, but we've had some lines out of both camps. Mr. Zelensky said in his nightly video address, uh, it was as frank as possible, and obviously it was about our European affairs. Bertalan Havasi, Mr. Orban's press chief, confirmed the apparently spontaneous meeting, but did not say if Mr. Zelensky had succeeded in changing the Hungarian Prime Minister's position. He said, with regards to Ukraine's EU accession, Victor Orban signalled that the member states of the EU were continuously discussing the issue. So all of this has comes just days before a European Union summit on Thursday and Friday where the bloc will decide whether to start membership talks with Ukraine and provide Kyiv with additional aid. Just to remind ourselves, every EU member state has to agree in order for accession talks to begin and Mr Orban has repeatedly said he opposes Ukraine joining the bloc and he's also threatened to block moves to provide Kyiv with an additional £42 billion in financial aid between now and 2027. Also ahead of those talks on Thursday and Friday, Ukraine's foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba has said it would be devastating if the EU did not vote to start accession talks with Ukraine. He said, I cannot imagine, I don't even want to talk about the devastating consequences that will occur if the EU Council, shall the EU Council fail to make this decision. Kuleba told reporters as he arrived for a meeting with EU foreign ministers in Brussels. Just further news on the intense diplomacy in Brussels this week, and I'm sure we'll get Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent, back to talk us through it. But this week, Ukraine and Hungary's foreign ministers will meet for the first time since Russia's invasion began in February 2022. Kuleba and Peter C. Jato will hold talks ahead of a meeting of European foreign ministers today in Brussels as well. Just staying with Hungary then, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, has got involved as well. He said that Hungary should not break European unity by vetoing Ukraine's accession talks. He said, I hope that European unity will not be broken because this isn't the moment to weaken our support to Ukraine. Elena Valtonen, Finland's foreign minister, also weighed in. She said that Hungary's opposition to Ukrainian membership was, quote, very, very deplorable. And she added, it is crucial that we keep on aiding Ukraine for as long as it's needed. And it's not only for the cause of Ukraine, but also for our own cause. To continue this whirlwind of diplomacy, Germany's Olaf Scholz has also been briefing reporters. He told a press conference that the war would drag on for a long time and that the Russian president was counting on the West's support for Ukraine to diminish. He said it would be a very important message if we told him don't count on it, he told uh, reporters today. Linked to this, there's an interesting story also coming out of Brussels where a European Union diplomat has said that the EU uh, is yet to tackle as much as three quarters of, sorry, Ukraine is yet to tackle as much as three quarters of corruption in the country. So this comes from Azie Santalan Luzuriaga, the head of rule of law in the EU's delegation to Ukraine, who said that the country's efforts to cleanse itself of graft would be, quote, akin to a marathon. It's 42 kilometres and you need to think of the future, he said, at an anti-corruption conference. In the marathon, he said, we are now somewhere in the first 10 kilometres. Again, just to note, the EU will only allow Ukraine to join the bloc if it makes significant process progress in tackling corruption. Another EU official, Wolfgang Nozar, said, we can help with advice, but the real work is for Ukraine to do. So let's just zoom out. That was a sort of very quick cap recap of everything that's been going on this morning and Sunday. But let's zoom out and put all of this in perspective. Volodymyr Zelensky's wife, Olena, has told the BBC that a slowdown in military aid and financial support was, quote, a mortal danger for the country. Uh, she said, in simple words, we cannot get tired of this situation because if we do, we die. This is in an interview with Laura Kunzberg. Mr. Zelensky said that Ukrainians are worried that the West has already got bored of the war in Ukraine. She said it hurts us greatly to see the signs that the passionate willingness to help may fade. It is a matter of life for us.
Just a few more bits and pieces before we go to Tony in the US. Moving away from diplomatic news then, back to Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has moved lorries to Poland by rail after roads were blocked by protesting truckers. This is a long-running story we've covered multiple times on this podcast. Uh, Ukraine says that 3,000 500 lorries are blocked on the Polish side of the border because of the disruption by disgruntled hauliers protesting against what they say is unfair competition. After crossing the border by rail, Ukraine's state railways company said that the trucks would continue to their destination by road. Just to remind ourselves, border blockades are also ongoing in Hungary and in Slovakia. And further south in Slovakia, Slovakian truckers have actually resumed their blockade of the Ukrainian borders. The UNAS Hauliers Union is protesting, like the Poles, against what they say is unfair competition from rival Ukrainian firms. It had actually paused its blockade of the Ushhorod viznye nemetske crossing on the 4th of December, but has actually restarted it. Boss Stanislav Skala said it would continue until, quote, further notice. And finally, uh, Britain is, has said it will donate £3.7 million to Ukraine to support war crimes investigations. Ukrainian prosecutors have recorded more than 110,000 war crimes by Russian forces since the invasion in the start of the full-scale invasion in February 2022. Uh, we're told that the funding will be used to train prosecutors in open-source intelligence techniques and preparing well-evidenced cases. That's a sort of roundup then of the diplomatic and political news. One really p- big piece of news we've heard is that after attending Javier Millet's inauguration, Volodymyr Zelensky will travel to Washington. Tony Diver, you're our US editor. You're there. Uh, what kind of reception can Volodymyr Zelensky expect? Well, David, it feels like every time I come on this podcast, it's a similar story, really, with, with the US Congress and aid for Ukraine. So we know that Zelensky's visiting tomorrow. He's going to be meeting a few people. He's going to be meeting some White House officials. He's going to be spending some time with the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. And he's also going to be meeting with some senators. To catch everyone up, there's been a bit of back and forth over this issue in the last few weeks. But Previously, when we talked about Republicans in Congress being opposed to aid for Ukraine, we were talking about those in the House of Representatives, because that's where the bill was originally introduced. Um, And Joe Biden wants to put $61 billion of extra aid to Ukraine. But in the meantime, what's happened basically is where there was previously support among Republicans for Ukraine in the Senate. uh, A lot of those senators have now flipped over and are now backing this harder line position that was previously only held by the ones in the House. So without getting too much into the legislative complications of it, the position for people who support Ukraine in the US has got worse uh, in the last few weeks. And we had a vote last week in the Senate in which senators voted down this $62 billion uh, funding package. So basically what that means is there's no clear path for that money to be passed in Congress. And without it going through Congress, the Pentagon can't spend it. They can't send any weapons to Kiev. They can't make any financial assistance. They can't really do anything. And the White House has warned that although there is still some money left in the kitty from a previous resolution that was passed, that money is slowing down. The packages that are going to Ukraine are getting smaller and smaller. And really, unless any new packages passed by the end of December, there's going to be a real impact on the ground. And so that was a bit of movement that we've seen in the last couple of weeks when we've previously spoken about this. It was really just sort of expert speculation as to when Ukraine would really start to feel the pinch from a a slowdown in US spending. Well, the White House has now put a date on it. They say if there's nothing passed by the end of December, then it's going to start to get really tricky. So what we've got tomorrow is Zelensky himself basically making the pitch yet again to congressmen saying to them, you need to get on with this and pass this and and trying to make the case to them, as his wife did, as as you've just mentioned, that the consequences could be pretty disastrous on the ground if that US support doesn't continue. 
And Tony, what's the feeling in Washington? Do you get a sense that uh, Republicans who are against sending further aid to Ukraine are in the mood to listen or not? Well, yes, I think they are. Um, and actually, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has said that the president is willing to talk about this and is willing to negotiate. We actually had just two weeks ago, we had a delegation of British politicians over, which we discussed before. We had Liz Truss and various others who came over to try and convince these Republicans. One of those in the delegation told me behind the scenes that there is some flexibility among these Republicans, even though they talk tough in the papers, there is some willingness to move. And so what we now need to see in the next couple of weeks is some outline of what a deal might look like. Now, publicly, these people have said that for them, the real red line is whether or not there's any additional funding for border security measures in the US. And and there's a bit of a quid pro quo going on there, that if Biden was to concede more funding for border security, trying to reduce the number of people making passage into the US, into into the southern US uh, via Mexico, then they might be willing to consider some more money for Ukraine. But I mean, at this moment, we don't really have a clear idea of what exactly the deal might look like. At the moment, we're looking at some sort of broad policy positions that really need to be hammered out behind closed doors pretty quickly if, as Zelensky is expected to say tomorrow, this legislation can go through in time for it not to have a real impact in the new year. And Tony, just a final question from me, because I know Don wants to jump in as well. But from your position in Washington, is this story dominating the news agenda there? Are people talking about it? What's the atmosphere around the fact that Zelensky is coming to Washington tomorrow? No, I have to say it isn't. And we've seen a bit of a shift over that in the last few months. Before the war in Israel started, people were talking about Ukraine a lot. And it was one of the big political talking points. It's certainly one of the big flashpoints between the Republican-controlled House and the White House. But actually, I mean, even in foreign policy discussions, the conversation really has now moved on to what's going on in Gaza. And I think that's reflected in the opinion polls as well. If you look at what the American public say about the sort of importance of the war in Ukraine, people are not hugely bothered about it anymore. A lot of people are actually actively anti sending more aid to Kiev. And in a recent poll that we had conducted uh, in swing states for the next election, which is, of course, next November, we found that people didn't really see it as a defining issue of the campaign, despite the pretty clear differences between the Democrats and Republicans on this. So, yeah, I would say it really is slipping down the list in terms of political salience at the moment. And so the Zelensky trip may well be an attempt to try and bring some sort of renewed vigour to that debate, both in the minds of the public and indeed legislators. But yeah, I think the, the amount that we talk about Ukraine in the UK and across Europe is not reflected anymore in the kind of discussions that are going on in the US. Really, this is becoming a bit of a second order issue now. That's fascinating. And Tony, how will you be covering it tomorrow? Well, of course, we'll be covering whatever whatever um, Zelensky says. We're not sure if we're going to get any public remarks from him, but we should get a fair bit of briefing from, from those who meet him. I mean, the White House has put out a pretty optimistic statement, to be honest, in which they said that Zelensky's visit is designed to... Uh, highlight the enduring security of the US's commitment to Ukraine. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's a pretty generous way of saying this is a last ditch attempt to commit some of these lawmakers to support it. So we'll be covering what everyone says about it and probably some pretty punchy remarks from the Republicans as well, who, um, who you know, as we can gather from seeing what they've said previously, will probably not be thrilled to see Zelensky there and, and perhaps not that receptive to his arguments either. Thank you so much, Tony. Dom, did you want to jump in there? 
Yeah, I just wanted to add to what Tony was saying there, that in the briefing I've just had with Grant Shapps, he was asked about this, we asked him about this clearly, and he he was pretty relaxed about the whole US coming to a deal and what having getting the thing through through Congress. He was saying that he was with Lloyd Austin in Washington, I think, two weeks ago, and yeah, his mood was pretty relaxed, which echoes the mood that we had last week from the Western officials who were also thinking, yes, it's, it's sticky, but this is politics and all, we'll get there in the end. Grant Shapps did make the point today that there is still five billion, big B billion dollars left from the last presidential drawdown that's yet to be actually be placed with industry, mostly US industry, I'd, I would imagine. So even though the money's going to run out at the end of the year is, is, the, is, the, is the date we've kind of been given, that, that suggests that these things are going to be put on contract. So five billion dollars still gets you a big old bag of bang. So, there's, you know, it's not that everything's going to be cut off tomorrow. Of course, it will take a while for those things to be procured, produced, and then sent out and what have you. But there's still there's still a bit bit left in the pipe before we start um, scrabbling around for whatever's left. I just wonder if, if Tony's still there. I'd be interested to get his view on if he's got an idea of the political risks Zelensky is taking by going to Washington. In the last few weeks, we've seen pretty much for the first time since the, the start of the full-scale invasion, a kind of not a break at all, but the comments from Klitschko last week, a political opponent of Zelensky, but actually when I met um, Klitschko with Joe Barnes at the Madrid-NATO conference, he was very clear that political opponents, they, 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 get, they support each other in times of an existential crisis. But actually Klitschko was, was pretty critical of, of Zelensky last week, and it's the first signs of domestic politics being played out in the open. And I just wondered, Tony, what your view would be on if Zelensky goes to Washington and... and doesn't get a deal, doesn't get this thing through, which is probably not going to, but doesn't get like really warm words of support. You know, is there a mood, do you think? Are you detecting any mood at all? People starting to talk about another leader in Ukraine. I, I accept you say it's sort of slipping off the agenda a little bit, but you know, is there any talk of people thinking, you know, hey, is this is this still the guy to to see the country through? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I have to say there's not a huge amount of discussion of internal Ukrainian politics in the US, but I do think the thing that's surprised me is some comments made by Republican candidates in the last few weeks about Zelensky himself. And actually Vivek Ramaswamy, who's one of those Republican presidential candidates, said in the debate that he thought that Ukraine was basically a corrupt society or had a corrupt government, that he thought that Zelensky himself had been involved in that kind of thing. And and there is a sort of there is a creeping criticism of Zelensky himself by some of these Republicans when they're trying to make the argument that the US sending this aid over is not actually a particularly good idea. And I think that's partly an attempt to just discredit the Ukrainian government and say, well, these Democrats come around saying that this is all a matter of great freedom and democracy to fund the war in Ukraine. But actually, these people aren't that democratic themselves either. I haven't seen a huge amount of discussion of sort of alternatives to Zelensky. And actually, the condemnation from those people tends to be of Ukrainian politics as a whole. And inherent corruption in the system, it seems to be the argument they're making as opposed to proposing specific alternatives. But, but yeah, I mean, there, there, there is a small amount of that. Just on your other point on the sort of optimism of some Western leaders, I think it is fair to say that all of these debates they were spending in Congress, whether it's about Ukraine or anything else, do tend to take this form that they run right up to the wire. And you have this intense negotiation between Congress and the White House over what each side wants out of these pieces of legislation. It's not unusual at all for a deadline like this to be set at the end of the year and for something to only be worked out at the very last minute. And actually, you know, you might argue that the US political system is designed specifically to incentivize that by balancing the powers between the the White House and Congress. So at the moment, it looks like there may be a shape of a deal there. And some of these sort of slightly more hard headed politicians, maybe Shapps and Lloyd Austin included, might think that this is all just how it goes. 
but you know people like Zelensky and and indeed Zelenska will say this is really a matter of life and death this is not a thing to be playing politics over so there's another dimension to that there as well just one more if I may Tony just while you're on I very rarely get to get my arms around you so uh, so you're not going anywhere Vivek Varishwami's criticism of Ukraine and Zelensky in particular now he didn't do particularly well in the last debate Nikki Haley handed him his you know, ass on a plate quite frankly so do you think his poor performance and his numbers are going down do you think that sort of conversely might take the sting out of the anti-Ukraine lobby in the States? Well, I think it's not its not really Ramaswamy who's leading it at a national level. I mean, all of this opposition that we're talking about is all in Congress from people who were elected well before this cycle started. I think that specific argument about corruption, he's, only, he's the most prominent person making it, and, and perhaps we might see that die out a bit. But yeah, as you point out, Nikki Haley perform, has performed very well in the last couple of those debates. And the key difference, you might say, between her and him on 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 policy in general is on foreign stuff. It's on Ukraine and it's on Israel <laughs> and Gaza. And it's, it's about this sort of debate about an isolationist. Is that uh, she knows US what she's talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, she's certainly more in line with the sort of foreign policy position that previous Republican administrations would have taken and indeed that the UK takes. So, yeah, I mean, clearly internationally, there's a huge amount of resistance to this idea of sort of MAGA republicanism because it means that the US withdraws from institutions like NATO and sends less funding to various wars that the West is supportive of. So, yeah, I think we may well see foreign policy emerge as one of those major topics as we head towards the Iowa caucus, which is on the 15th of January, which is the first kind of major diary event of the presidential race. But you also have got Donald Trump and you've got Ron DeSantis in that race as well. And neither of those are particularly supportive of the war in Ukraine either. So there is a possibility that Nikki Haley's slightly more hawkish foreign policy instincts are a bit drowned out. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for joining us. That was really fascinating. Best of luck with your work, Dan. Yours has just started. Thank you very much, Dom, as well, for your questions. Let's go now to James Kilner. James, you were looking at Russia over the weekend, published a number of really fascinating stories on the Telegraph website. Uh, We've picked out three to talk through. Where would you like to start? Hi, David. Yeah, another busy weekend, as, as, as it usually is. Let's start with um, a story that Don was talking about, the Russian push along the front line, specifically around um, Avdivka, which really does seem the actual focus of it, of the whole push. And we saw reports from Ukrainian generals towards the end of Sunday saying that the Russians were making progress along the entire eastern front, they weren't particularly Pacific, but uh, but Avdivka is definitely the focus. And we've been reporting for a month or so now that this is the deadliest battle of 2023. So really dreadful. And some of the videos I've watched have been re- extremely disturbing. Anyway, the story that I published was hooked around um, a comment or, or thought piece by the Institute for Study of War, US think tank, which is closely linked to the US security um, apparatus. And they pontificated that... Uh, because because this whole this whole attack through winter through through the through the snow and the mud of winter is a very difficult thing to pull off and it and it goes against conventional military doctrine in many ways and they and and it's it's had many strategists scratching their heads a bit and the ISW as is more commonly known put out this theory that they think is linked to the um, Russian presidential election which is due in the middle of March we know that Putin is hooking his his campaign. And he will win, so campaign in the loosest sense of the word, around the war. He announced his candidacy, he confirmed his candidacy on Friday in a medal ceremony for soldiers in the Kremlin. And the ISW was saying he wants to look like he's on the front foot. He wants his soldiers to be attacking 
while he's talking about the election for the next four months. So this is theory. Make of it what you will. This is ISW's, you know, they're reflecting some sort of U.S., thinking on this or maybe they're troublemaking or, or maybe they've they've hit the nail on the head we, we don't know but it is a really interesting sort of challenge to try and understand or to get a bit more of an insight in how putin views the war and how it, the optics are very important for him and how he wants desperately to be seen as this great russian war leader a bit like his idol peter the great the russian empire builder of the 17th and uh, 18th century and how he is how he wants to be seen to be on the front foot and he's prepared to sacrifice the lives of thousands of men to to achieve these optics. So interesting there. And I think if the ISW are right, we will see this very aggressive Russian approach to the war on the, on the front line, i.e. they want to go beyond the static trenches and risk thousands of men for the next four months until at least after the um after the election. So interesting from the ISW, worth reporting, worth thinking about why this is happening. The second story that really caught my eye over the weekend, again, a Russian military story, was this issue about British intelligence and Ukrainian military intelligence put out statements, both put out statements within 24 hours of each other, uh, saying that the Kremlin is trying to copy Ukraine's very successful naval drone program. As the naval drones have really done a lot of damage to Russia's once vaunted Black Sea fleet, now much damaged and, and spends a lot of time in base hiding from these, from the, well, the missile attacks, but also the naval drones. They've been chasing us to Sevastopol in uh, Crimea, to Novorossiysk, 200 miles down the Black Sea coast. And now the Kremlin is even going to build a, a base in, an, in a sort of rebel part of Georgia, which is something like 600 miles away from Crimea. It's a really successful program. Uh, the UK Ministry of Defence and the Ukrainian Ministry of Defence are saying that the Russians are desperately trying to gather as much intelligence on this program, how the Ukrainians have done it from fragments of blown up naval drones or crashed naval drones and uh, snooping around online and, and, and paying people for it, etc. And according to the UK intelligence, the Kremlin has actually ordered 10 naval drones, rather large ones, have a top speed of 50 miles an hour apparently and a range of 120 miles and, and a, a payload of uh, half a ton or, or, or thereabouts from one of its arms manufacturers so they're speeding along now again i think it's worth just stepping back a bit and and sort of trying to work out what this means and uh, you know about the russian military military machine in many ways because as we know the russians have approached this war they thought they were going to win in a week or two weeks whatever and they weren't prepared for the long war and when they got bogged down they scrabbled around and they patched together their forces we're, you know, we're by buying kit off the shelf, really, from allies, Iran and North Korea, the main ones. The, these basic drones from Iran, which they've just swarm sent in swarms against Ukrainian cities, and these very basic artillery shells from from North Korea. So it's basic kit which the Russians have been buying in off the shelf and uh, plugging into their military. Now. The drone pro, the naval drone program that the Ukrainians have developed has become so sophisticated, it's far ahead of anything that their allies can offer them. So they are having to build up their own naval drone 
program from scratch. And that is a very complicated thing to do. So there's that to consider. And the second thing is, and again, this touches on a, on the story that Dom was writing for the newspaper this morning about the UK and, and Norwegians helping Ukraine put together a bit more of a naval presence in the Black Sea. Because, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think there is much of a Ukrainian naval presence at the moment, which begs the question, what is Russia intending to use these, to deploy these naval drones against? Are they anticipating, is this an anticipation of a bigger naval naval presence, in, for Ukrainian naval presence in the Black Sea? Or are they anticipating the next war? Is this in preparation for something else? So I, I think also that is really worth considering when we're, when we're looking at this, this sort of the wider picture when we're looking at this story, David. And then the third one, the third story of the weekend, the third big story is this, these egg price rises in Russia, which was really a hook to look at to look at inflation and the impact of inflation in Russia. And it was triggered by lots of noise on Telegram, Russian Telegram channels and images of people queuing at dawn to buy cheap eggs out of, out of trucks rather than in shops. Now, eggs have risen by around roughly around 30% in the last two months. The price of eggs risen by 30% in two months for in, in Russia. And some shops have been reported about the reports that some shops are selling them individually. The Kremlin has blamed, in rather Soviet language, blamed like hoarders for this terrible, you know, hoarders and capitalist supermarkets for this terrible price rise. And they've ordered their inspectors to go and raid warehouses and find these eggs, which they sure have been taken out of the market. And they've ordered, they've sort of given permission and told shops to, you know, they can't, you, you can't raise eggs any higher, the, the price of eggs any higher, and you have to buy in more, more eggs from Turkey. So it's, it's getting quite confrontational. People are getting a bit angry. The Kremlin's getting a bit stressed. The real reasons, as economists will tell you, is just this inflation, which has been built into the Russian economy, mainly because of the war and how it's impacting ordinary people. If officially, inflation is running about 7%, according to the Russian central bank. But that is in no way a, a general inflection of uh, how inflation feels to your average ordinary Russian, which is buying food and petrol and, and heating and uh, stuff to heat themselves with, etc. It's much, much higher than this. And this is all linked in to the, the relative collapse of the ruble, the Western sanctions, the increased labour costs, because men have been sent off to fight in the war, and people and men have, and people have already also fled the country. The way that the Kremlin has reorientated the economy uh, towards its military industrial base, 30% of its spending next year is going to be on on the military is asking people to do an extra shift in factories after after work. Bakers are now putting drones together rather than baking bread, etc. So, and economists are saying that this inflation in the Russian system is here to stay. It's a really interesting story. Obviously, it comes at a, a ahead of the election, and it's making people angry. And the last point of this, David, is I, I must be something of a, of a Russian Ru Russian egg expert. I wrote a similar story uh, in 2007 for Reuters on eggs in Russia and the price of eggs in Russia. We went to a market a couple of hours north of, of Moscow and interviewed an egg seller there. And she was complaining about the rising cost of eggs back then. Now, an egg is roughly 10 times the cost as it was in 2007. But the, the point here is, is it reflects also where Russia is. 
that story for Reuters was triggered by protests in St. Petersburg by 1,500 pensioners who are protesting against rising cost of living and rising price of eggs and, and bread, etc. Um, the same thing is happening now in today's Russia, and there's zero protests. You're not allowed to protest. So, again, we're looking at the state of Russia, modern Russia, and reflecting back for 16 years through eggs. So, interesting. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much, James. And uh, a gold star to any listener who can go back to 2007 and find James's, find James's article for Reuters on Russian eggs. Thank you so much, James, for talking us through your stories there. Dom, I don't know if we've still got you. Can we talk a little bit about these, these mine hunting ships that the UK is uh, giving to, selling to uh, the Ukrainians? Yeah, sure. I think we're giving them rather than selling them. We did sell them or maybe gave another couple a couple of years ago. But these are two Sandown class mine hunters. So pretty old, but they work really well. The trick with mine hunting is to get a signal out from the, the ship to bounce off the metal the metal mine or whatever it is you're investigating. And then go so trying to do that through a metal hull is pretty difficult. So mine hunters generally have well wooden hulls. It's, pr- it's proper kind of age of sail type stuff. We the Brits we've used uh, glass reinforced plastic on our hulls to get the signal out, which is I think it's deemed better for, for the returning signal and also is a bit more robust than a few planks of wood. But they are they are generally good. In recent times, what's happened is that you'd you'd look for this you'd look for something you'd get a ping off the floor, then you'd send down a clearance diver to actually go and have a look and see what the metal object was, which is obviously a bit dangerous. So last few years we've been using a thing called Sea Fox, which is a, a drone that's tethered by by cable back to the ship. But you drive this thing around and then go and have a look with a camera and a light, go and see what it is. And then I think I don't think that I don't think Sea Fox can also then also be an explosive but i think you can then go back with a diver and put a put an explosive charge next to the thing and and defeat the mine that way now when we so august last year i did a story when the, the royal navy's been training uh, ukrainian sailors and marines in how to use uh, drones underwater you know autonomous drones i would have thought they'll put these two capabilities together so they'll have our, our mine hunters or all the ships that they've got already and the reason why i'll come back to you in a moment um but these, uh, the, the underwater drones, obviously the technology is much more modern than Seafox. It's not tethered to the craft, so it can go further and operate in different sea states and all that kind of that kind of stuff. So I think that's probably what they're going to try to do here. Um, the point about these, the ships that have been promised today, is that they're not actually going to get there during this war, because the Montreux Convention, which is administered by Turkey, means that uh, you can't move military naval assets into or through the Bosphorus Strait so into the Black Sea if you're a belligerent nation so Russia and Ukraine are not allowed to move any new vessels into the Black Sea now I don't know if that means that you can't take these things across land but I would have thought not and it'd be pretty easy to spot it and all the rest of it so so these ships are not going to get there till the resolution of this current war but the point is that it was part of this new maritime capability that's going to be set up by three and maybe by tomorrow, 23 nations to um, to bolster Ukraine's maritime capability after after the war. All these bits and pieces are there. You'll notice that the, the elephant in the room is NATO Article 5. How strong all these different bilateral and wider defence initiatives are to build up capability. It's all, all to the good. But Article 5, as in, I will come and stand next to you if there's an attack, they don't carry those, obviously. But, you know, it's all it's all to the good. But, yeah, this is the start of it with these two MCMVs, as they're called, mine countermeasure vessels, and the raiding craft and the Viking amphibious vehicles as well. And there's going to be, there's going to be more 
to come on that, I think. So, yeah, all good, all moving in the right direction, but actually nothing's going to happen soon and for as long as, there's, as this war is, is ongoing. Thank you very much, Dom, for talking us through that. Let's go to our final thoughts then. Dom, you can have a breather. James Kilner, can we come to you first? Sure. So I was thinking last week, David, about this trip by Putin to the UAE and Saudi Arabia and how it had wrong-footed people and people weren't expecting, etc., and what it means and, and what it's all about. And I think it's, it's hard evidence of a link of how the world countries are hardening their stances, etc. We live in a very interconnected world and how the war in Gaza is influencing alliances around the war in Ukraine. So we know that Russia has taken a very different stance on the war in Gaza to the US and the West. It it has hosted a political delegation from Hamas in, in, in October, shortly after uh, the ha- Hamas har- terrorist attacks against Israel and, and against Israel's attacks in uh, over Gaza, searching for the Hamas terrorists, etc. And we know that the UAE has also called for a ceasefire and how that has been rejected by the US and the West. And perhaps the Putin trip to the UAE and the huge red carpet that we saw rolled out out for him with flyovers and soldiers parading and, and all this very favourable language, etc., is a message from the UAE to the West um, saying, you know, we can also sort of become more friendly with your enemies if you don't come meet us some way on, on the Gaza issue. It's just something I've been thinking about. And I think it's really important for people to keep remembering that things are so interconnected. Something happening in Gaza can undermine a sort of a, an alliance against Russia, an economic alliance against Russia. Maybe that's what we saw in the UAE last week. Thank you very much, James Kilner. Dom Nichols. So in the brief just now with, with Grant Chaps and Minister, Mr. Grum from, um, from Norway and Admiral Nispava, I asked Grant Chaps about money. So the last two years, Britain has, has, in terms of military aid, gifted the equivalent of £2.3 billion pounds for 2022-2023. They've been very cagey about the figure for 24 and beyond. And I said, so rather than giving me a yes, no, or, or an opportunity of getting out of it too easy, I said, well, I'm going to start with, I'm assuming it's about the same you can say no if it's not. Is it going to go up by inflation or, or more than inflation? And he absolutely flimflammed and was talking about, well, it's not just it's not just coins, it's lots of different capabilities. Anyway, it was all a bit all a bit woolly. But I then afterwards had a had another brief chat and I, I got the very strong impression that actually what Britain is waiting for is a suitable opportunity for the Prime Minister to make some big announcement about funding. But I don't anticipate Britain's military support to to go down in any way at all for Ukraine. And I was given very warm assurances that it might even go up. Now, whether it goes up by more than inflation is is yet to be seen. But I think in terms of Britain alone, our military aid support for Ukraine is not going anywhere. I mean, that's the the words they're using. They're saying they're, they're sticking with it for as long as it takes. So that would chime with that. But then more broadly, this discussion about, well, well, Europe, what happens with Europe, especially if the US are are slightly detached and the, the prospect of a Trump presidency is not not definite that he would um, he would withdraw support from Ukraine. But, it, you know, working in anticipation that might be the future. What does Europe do about that? So there's a long debate about, well, does Europe need to take more responsibility for its near abroad and who in Europe does it? We've got Macron and Schultz are a little bit, you know, tongue tied domestically at, at the moment. 
So where is the debate? And so Grant Shapp said, I thought it was a very telling quote. He mangles it a little bit. I'll talk you through it in a second. But he said, I genuinely do think that Europe needs to step up and look after its own security. I believe that for a very long time, Ukraine aside, we can't carry on expecting the US to always ride in to the rescue of Europe. I do also think it's in the interest of the US to do so because they'll, this way mangles it, because they'll want to show one autocrat that other autocrats wouldn't benefit from a similar approach elsewhere in the world. I think what you're saying is, you know, if you don't stand up to Putin, then Xi Jinping gets gets a bit chopsy over Taiwan. He finished off by saying, so I believe it's in America's interest as well. Europe absolutely needs to step up. This is one of the reasons why we're working to increase our military spending as well. So end of quote from Grant Shapps. Now, of course, Grant Shapps, Conservative Party MP, they may well be out of power in a year's time. But even so, those I thought were fairly strong words from a British Defence Secretary saying Europe needs to step up, look after its own security. We shouldn't always expect US to ride to the rescue. I mean, these are words that, that, that will, we will, I will make sure we play back to him and say, well, go on then. What are you doing about it? What, where is this coalition, this maritime capability coalition thing that you've launched today? That's great. Where's the one for land? Where's the one for air and cyber and all the all the other areas? What's what's happening with these? How are they how are they all developing? So I thought it was um, like I say he did he did bump his gums a little bit about autocrats in the middle and got a bit twisted. But I think it was quite telling that he was he was unequivocally saying Europe needs to step up um, and look after its own security. And I'll be playing back that back, that back to him um, at every opportunity I get. Thank you very much, Dom and James. Just a quick update from me. We spoke about the blockade at the Polish border earlier. There's some confusion still there. So the we, we're running a story on our live blog, which says that Polish truckers have lifted their blockade of the largest cargo border crossing with Ukraine. This comes from Ukrainian Infrastructure Minister Oleksandr Kubrakov. He said the blockade of the Yahodin Dorogusk checkpoint is over. 15 vehicles have crossed into Ukraine and are now at the crossing. In addition, 25 trucks have been cleared to head towards Poland. But on the Polish side, the union leader Tomasz Borakowski told Reuters that no deal has been reached on permanently ending the blockade. So still confusing um, updates and news coming from Poland. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.